Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. So last week, I gave this challenge that I want us to begin the new year with a focus on prayer, prayer in our personal lives, prayer together as a church, uh, that the Lord would do the kinds of things that only the Lord can do in our lives and through our church and in our community and in this nation and beyond this nation. Uh, I was reminded of of a tale uh, about a small town that had historically been dry, which means they didn't sell alcohol, but then a local businessman decided to build a tavern. A group of Christians from a local church were concerned and planned an all-night prayer meeting to ask God to intervene. And it just so happened that shortly thereafter, lightning struck the bar and burned it to the ground. The owner of the bar, by the way, sued the church, (laughs) claiming that the prayers of the congregation were responsible for his business burning to the ground. So the church hired a lawyer to argue in court that they were not responsible. The presiding judge, after his initial review of the case, stated, no matter how this case comes out, one thing is clear to me, the tavern owner believes in prayer and the Christians don't. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I was listening to a podcast this week uh, by Tim Keller, uh, that, well, that had Tim Keller in it. You know, longtime pastor up in New York, he's done a tremendous work of God up there. And a couple of years ago, uh, Tim found that he had stage four pancreatic cancer, which for those of you that don't know, that's virtually a death sentence. Now here he is a couple of years later and he still has cancer, but overall he's doing okay. And he was just talking about this experience of what it was like uh, to get the diagnosis and to talk about what he calls scanxiety because every time you're going in to get a scan, you don't know the report that you're going to get. He's a, you know, initially when the doctor was talking to him, it was like, you know, you might actually have like weeks to live. We don't know. That's a pretty sobering moment, isn't it? Right there. What was interesting, though, as I was listening to him talk in the podcast, was he was saying, you know what? I have found, through this experience, uh, a deeper connection with God than I've ever had in my life. He said, and I'm ashamed to say it, I found out just how pitiful my prayer life actually was. He said, there's a deepness, there's a closeness, there's a level of intimacy with God that I have never had in my life. He said, so I'm gonna say something a little bit strange, but I wouldn't trade the cancer for anything because it brought me to that place. How many of us would be able to say something like that? We're reminded as we look in Luke chapter 11, and we're gonna look in verses three and four today, uh, this prayer, because Jesus was looking at his disciples, and they were looking at a man that was accomplishing some pretty incredible things, and they're like, how does he do this? And he was talking about prayer, and they're like, well, then teach us how to pray, because they were looking at a man that was not just performing miracles, but doing other things as well, and they realized that there was a power that this guy had that other people around just did not seem to have tapped into. The key to Jesus and everything that he was doing in his ministry here is he had a vital prayer life with his father. You would find in the scriptures after he maybe goes and he's speaking to a large crowd or after a day where he's literally healing people, it says he would withdraw to a solitary place and he would pray. Some scholars would point out that Judas knew exactly where Jesus would be on the night that he was going to hand him over because he would likely go into the Garden of Gethsemane very consistently and pray there. So they're like, hey, where are we gonna find this guy? Judas is like, oh, I know where we can find this guy. And we see something from the heart of Jesus knowing his hours are numbered 
How he spent his last hours were washing the feet of people and end time in prayer with his father. How important was prayer to him? And so the way it begins is our, our father, our father. He says, pray like this, recognizing that you have a heavenly father who is in heaven. Literally, or in the air is a better way to translate it. All around you and in everything that is surrounding you. That is how near God is to you right this second. Whether you feel it or not, that's how near God is to you. He begins by trying to go up. Let's get vertical first, and then we can start talking about our needs and our wants, because God does want us to talk about our needs and our wants. In fact, you see it in verses three and four, and let me read it with you, and you can look up here. He says, give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us of our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. This is kind of the shorter version of what you would find in Matthew's prayer. And I wanna say something to you because it's very important right off the bat. It is perfectly fine for you to communicate with God about your needs and your wants. It is perfectly fine for you to communicate those things. After all, uh, what kind of a kid is gonna be a little bit jumpy about going up to their father and saying, there's some things that I actually need. I, I don't care how old my girls are, that is just the kind of father that I hope to be for them. That maybe even later when they're into adulthood, if there is a need that they have, that they know that they can come to me and that they are confident that I'm going to listen and do everything that I can to help them. But I can't help what I don't know. Now there's a difference between me and God there because God does know it. But what we see in this prayer is God's wanting us to communicate it, to tap in to drill deeper into our relation and to have that kind of vulnerability with him, that kind of honesty with him. It is perfectly fine to lay these things at the feet of God. We, see, we remember Jesus started praying, our Father in heaven, holy is your name, your, name, your kingdom come. But then he pivots, do you see it? Then he's making specific requests about wants and needs. And he's like, pray like that. It's all right. See, getting our heart set on God's desires for us first it reorients us, it changes us to being in the right positions about the kinds of things we're gonna ask for. You start with him and then you be honest with yourself. In Matthew's version of this same prayer, he says, your will be done. Your will be done. Perfectly fine to ask, but your will be done. See, what this reminds us of is we ask because he's our father, we ask because he's our provider, it shows that we know our continued dependence on him. It shows God that we know that about ourselves. And what that means is we're literally putting ourselves in a, in a posture at the feet of God to say, I need you. I need you. I don't know when the last time you said something like that to God is, but that's the essence of this part of the prayer. I'm that dependent on you. The main thing that would keep us from saying something like this is pride. It's pride. I don't have any need for you. I mean, after all, I've got food, I've got shelter, and I've got clothing. I just don't have any need. Pride is what gets in the way. But did you notice the simplicity of the requests here? Give us what? Daily bread. Give us daily bread. Why, why use an example like that? It seems a little bit strange, doesn't it? But if you go back to that day and time, friends, it makes total sense why you would pray for something like this. I mean, Jesus teaches us to pray that God would give it to us when? Every day. And obviously, Jesus was not telling his disciples to only pray for bread, just so you know. I pray, give me this day my daily steak. I'm kidding, I don't. 
I don't. But if he gave it, I would eat it. You know, I'm a steak-eating guy. I would receive it. Gracious. But here's the catch. For them, bread, that was the staple of the diet. It just was. And it had been for many years. It makes sense that you would ask something like that when it's the staple of your diet. But more than that, to them, prayer was a powerful symbol of the work of God in and around them. You probably remember this. His provision for them in the Old Testament came in the form of bread. When the Israelites, we remember when they were in the wilderness after their exodus from Egypt, life in the wilderness was hard. And soon the people began to complain a little bit. Hard to believe, but go with it. They started to complain a little bit. And they're like, well, when we were slaves in Egypt, we at least had food. You remember that moment? Do we do something like that? Yes. I'll just help you out there. The answer is yes. Maybe we're not saying literally bread, but we do it. It was difficult. And here was the response that God gave to them. He promised that I'm going to, quote, rain bread from heaven for you in Exodus 16, 4. This bread means something to them because it taps in to a part of their experience and their history that when they couldn't see the provision of God, it rains down in front of them in ways that only God could provide. He says, I'm here for you. I love this story by R.C. Sproul. Let me share it with you. He said, after the Korean War ended, South Korea was left with a large number of children who had been orphaned by the war. He said, we've seen the same thing in the Vietnam conflict. We've seen it in Bosnia. We've seen it in other places. In the case of Korea, relief agencies came in to deal with all the problems that arose in connection with having so many orphaned children. One of the people involved in this relief effort told him about a problem they encountered with the children who were in the orphanages. He said, even though the children had three meals a day provided for them, they were restless and anxious at night and had difficulty sleeping. And as they talked to the children, they soon discovered that the children had great anxiety about whether they would have food the next day. So to help resolve the problem, here's what they did. The relief workers in one particular orphanage decided that each night the children would be put to bed. The nurses there would place a single piece of bread in each of the children's hand. The bread was not meant to be eaten. Instead, it was simply intended to be held by the children as they went to sleep. It was, they said, it was the security blanket for them. And it reminded them that there would be provision for their daily needs. Isn't that an amazing story? Hold on to this because this is a reminder that your needs will be met. And every single day, the needs of those kids were actually met. Give us this day our daily bread. This kind of prayer reminds us of a couple of things. One is it reminds us of learning to be content. Give us this day what? Daily bread. Not give me this day everything that I need in my retirement. You give me what is sufficient and I'll receive it and I'll give you the praise for it. And the second thing that it teaches us is generosity. Because notice what he, what he didn't pray was give me this. He said, give it to who? Give it to us. I mean, inherent in this prayer that Jesus is modeling for us is the need to continue to pray for and to meet the needs of other people and that God would do it in a way that he gets the credit for it. May you work like that, God. May you work like that. Now, I'm gonna get out of order here because I'm gonna switch, right? Because the next one I wanna talk to as a part of his prayer is lead us not into temptation and then I'll come back. 
See, the root meaning of this, when it says, lead us not into temptation, that is a good thing to pray for. Basically, our prayer, lead us not into temptation, is a prayer for God to protect you. Before you ever step out the door, God, protect me. I don't know what's coming at me this day. God, protect me. Guide me around situations and circumstances that might lure me in to a godless action. If you could keep me from that, Lord. He says, pray that. See, we read it as Jesus teaching us to pray that God would not allow or permit us to be tempted. But we already know from James, if you're tempted, God's not the one doing that. That's not coming from him. And the prayer on the beginning of this is, before I ever go, you do everything that you can, Lord, to keep me from having to even make a decision like that. One that would break your heart, one that would hurt my relationship with you. Get out ahead of me before the day even begins. But it's not just about the temptations that we face. The other way of translating this is trials. Have you had a trial lately? That's like the saying goes. I mean, there are only certain kinds of people. You know, those that are going through trials, those that have been through trials, and those of you that are about to go through trials. That's just, that. it's like taxes. It's just a part of life, right? And we have to face them. Maybe he's saying that, lead us not into trials. That's kind of a weird thing to pray though, right? Because what we know is that often through our trials, our character is formed. It's forged through some of the difficult things that we face. And here you've got Jesus modeling something in a prayer that says, hey, if you could even keep me from trials, that would be great. What do we learn from that? And the answer is perfectly fine to ask it. It's perfectly fine to ask it. It's not wrong that if you're gonna go through a trial to ask God to remove it from you, and it's also perfectly fine if you say, if you could minimize it for me. And I can prove it because Jesus wasn't just saying something like this in a model prayer for us. He did this in Gethsemane. As he was looking at tremendous suffering that was ahead of him, he knew that it was on the horizon for him. Suffering unlike anything that you and I have ever known. What did he say? If there's another way, let's do that. That is a deep and profound moment of honesty with Jesus to his father. I am not looking forward to what is ahead of me. And if there is another way, I am open to that possibility. However, you remember how he says this in Matthew? Your will be what? Done. And that's exactly what he carried through when he went to the cross. He prayed honestly, I'm not looking forward to this. And God said, but this is the portion that I have for you. And he says, let's go. Let's go. It is perfectly fine to pray for this. Jesus is telling us it's perfectly fine to pray for this. Have you said something like that lately? This is a lot. This is a lot. And even if you don't want to take it away from me, if you would just alleviate it, I'm asking that. It's perfectly fine. But did you notice there's something else that he asked for? He says something else that we need to be active about in our prayer life is asking forgiveness. Did you catch that? What do you say? Forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of our debts is another way of saying it. He didn't hide that either. Last week I was sharing with you some of the studies that have been done on the uh, practices of Americans and their prayer lives. Some of it is hilarious uh, and some of it isn't. About 43% of Americans said that they actually include any time that they pray, a time where they spend time in confession. 
about 43%. I was kind of hoping that the number would be higher, <laughs> right? That people would be self-aware, self-reflective, and maybe honest before the Lord. And apparently about 43% of us actually do that. Some of the other things that, that I thought was just great is that the kind, we're not necessarily praying for forgiveness, uh, but I am praying that the God would bring vengeance on somebody that I work with. That number was actually in there, you know? It's a, you know, Lord, I'd like to talk with you about Steve and accounting, all right? But we're not gonna be spending any time in personal confession here, right? Forgive us of our debts. Forgive us of our debts. There's this beautiful truth in 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is faithful and righteous. He is just. He will forgive us of our sins and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a promise, friends. Hold on to it. Don't, don't hesitate to go before God because his grace is waiting for you, ready to cleanse you. He's ready to make the move. He's ready for you to make the move on your end. When he says to confess, though, this is something that's interesting. How many of you ever played like, don't raise your hands, but how many of you have ever prayed something like this? And forgive me of my sins, anywho. <laughs> now, I know what you're sitting there going. I have never said anywho in any prayer that I've ever... But I'm getting at a point here. How many of you have just kind of thrown the words out? Forgive me of my sins. And now I've got a lot of things I'd like to talk to you about. Maybe requests and whatnot. Okay, here's the thing. I've already said this. It's perfectly fine to let your request be made known. But the word here for confession is a Greek word, homologeo. Now I know you're all writing that down. But here's what the word means. It means that you specifically name the offense. That's what it means, is that when you are having your time in prayer with the Lord, you are specifically talking about things in your life that you, are know, that you know are out of his will. In other words, you name it in front of him. And you do that, not this kind of this broad and just forgive me on my sins, but you do it because as you're throwing out before God, you're doing it because you're agreeing with him that this isn't what he wants in his relationship with you and for you. You get specific. Why would we do something like that? And the answer is, is because with a lack of specific confession of sin, we are committed to an illusion, frankly. We're committed to an illusion. We are acting like there's something in our life that actually isn't there. And as a result, it stays because you won't look it in the eyes, call it what it is, and ask God to break the hold that it has over your life. That's the power of confession. That's part of what it's meant to do. It restores your relationship with your Lord where there's brokenness and it keeps that from having any kind of bond or hold over your life because you're calling it what it is. St. Augustine said this. He said, flee to God himself if you would flee from him. Flee to him by confessing, not hiding. For hide you cannot, but confess you can. That last part almost sounds like Yoda, doesn't it? Hide you cannot, but confess you can. And St. Augustine is 100% right. You cannot hide. What I want you to see is in confession, something that it brings. To you, it brings healing. It brings spiritual healing for you. In James 5.16, it says that we should confess our sins to one another. one another. We should pray for one another. It says that you may be healed. Because there is a personal and, and honestly social affliction that sin just brings. It never just affects you. It affects you, it affects your relationship with God, and almost inevitably, it affects your relationships with other people. 
And James is saying, call it what it is to God and call it what it is to other people. Why? Because we need them for accountability and strength. Part of the beautiful thing about being a part of a church is that you have people here that are a resource for you that will walk with you through things, not to judge you for it, but to get you past it. And that's the kind of power that confession can have in your life. It brings healing. I'm reminded of this in Psalm 32, three through five. It says, when I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. Why? It's because it was always there. It's always there. And it said, for day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was draining like in a summer's heat. Hello, Texas. We know what that's like. We know what that was like yesterday. But here's what it went on to say. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. Did you see the shift? But then I acknowledged it to you. And I did not conceal my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And here's what it says. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. It was done. And I was like, we can move on. We can move on. The first thing that confession does is it brings healing to you. The second thing that it does, it brings freedom to you. It brings freedom to you. It overcomes the lie that no one could accept the real you, allowing you to be fully known and fully loved. It's a key step in being healed from addictions that keep you enslaved. Even Jesus said this. In John 8, 34, he said, truly I tell you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to it. It holds you down, it binds you up, it pulls you back. And he says, there's gotta be a way to cut the cord and to free you from that. And the answer is, talk with me about it. Hand it over to me. When's the last time you've done that? When's the last time you've done it? That kind of transparency, that kind of honesty before your Lord who we know before we go to him, we know his grace is sufficient to cover all of it. It's everything and all that you need. Everything and all that you need. I love this story. J. Edwin Orr was given some thoughts on what it means to be a Christian. And honestly, friends, this is, this is how it started for me, is, is it started with me recognizing I had a need. I had to start there. And only after that, that I go to God and say, it's not just that I'm making wrong choices, it's that there's something in me that's wrong. There's something in me that's broken. And the choices that I'm making are just the outflow of that. And I need something new. That's how I came to God. And J. Edwin Orr gave some thoughts on what it means to become a Christian when he was speaking at a university. He asked a young woman to stand up, asked her if she believed in marriage. And she said yes. And he said, well, why do you believe in marriage? And the young woman said, well, because it gives stability to sexual commitment. It provides the right context for raising children. It provides assurance that someone is with you and all of the things that you go through in life. To which J. Edwin Orr said, oh, so you're married. And the young woman said, no, no, I'm not. And so Orr pointed this out. And I think this is something for us to take home today. He pointed out to the young lady that she had made an important observation which was this, believing in marriage is not the same thing as being married. Believing in marriage is not the same thing as being married. After all, she didn't have a man yet. She was already saying that. And so what Orr went on to point out to her was this. He said that becoming a Christian is similar to that. You're making a commitment. And when you're making a commitment, there has to be somebody to whom you are making that commitment. But you're also making a commitment to a way of life together which means you're making a choice to walk away from one way of life to say, I'm gonna go do life with you now. 
I'm gonna do something new, if you'll just take me. And you know what's on the other side of that, if you'll just have me? The answer is what? It's all that I was waiting for. It's all that I was waiting for. That's the kind of power that we find if more than 43% of Americans would start saying, Lord, we need to talk about some things. As it is there. And he's saying, that's all that I was waiting for you to start doing. Here's what happens when you become a Christian, friends, and it's pretty amazing. First, you become a child of God. When you become a Christian, you become a part of his family. You officially become adopted as a son or a daughter of the Lord. John 1, 12 and 13 says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor, the, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but were born of God. You become a child of God. The second thing is the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. Friends, God is all around you. The big difference when you receive him is he indwells you. He comes inside. That's what happens when you receive Jesus. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, it says, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. That is a promise for you when you take him. You've already seen that when you accept Christ, your sins are forgiven. And Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but now walk according to the spirit. And the other thing that you know when you take Christ is your eternity is set. It is set. It is done. The moment that you give yourself over to him. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, and friends, that is you that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, you will have everlasting life. Those are a lot of promises, and they're good ones. The only question is, is do we wanna take them? Do we wanna take them? We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.